welcome to a night. Hello and welcome to the Reaper's Digest podcast, the podcast where Duke and I dissect the best and worst in horror, sci-fi, and fantasy. Yes, indeed. I am Blake Ray. And I am Duke Ralston. All right. All right. What you got, Blake? I got me a redneck Christmas stout. Redneck Christmas stout. I am drinking um, Imperial Peanut Butter Milk Stout, um, Tailgate Brewing in Nashville. And I have sampled their Peanut Butter Milk Stout. I'm not sure what the difference is between Imperial Peanut Butter Milk Stout and Milk Stout, but I really love their Peanut Butter Milk Stout. So I'm excited to try this. Well, I think the Imperial is more of a dynasty. Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah, it's yeah, like a good. peanut butter cup, baby. <laughs> there you go. This is pretty good. This a uh, little, it's a little stouter than I was expecting. Okay, that's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. This has a, it, this has a, you know, very strong peanut butter flavor, mm-hmm. and then you get that finish from from the from the dark malt. It's very good. That's good. That's good. So we got us a barn burner tonight. Yes, we do. Favorite of both you and I. Mm -hmm. What are we Mm -hmm. uh, talking about tonight? We're going to be talking about the infamous Plan 9 from Outer Space. One of the... In your heart stand, the shocking truth. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yeah. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, you're already dead. Right? That's right. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about this movie uh, from your perspective. Okay. This when did you movie, first see it? When did I first see it? Yeah. Before I did Tennessee Macabre or Dark Princess Theater, uh, our local our local horror host in the 60s and 70s was Dr. Shock. And there was this guy that had kind of reconstituted uh, the Doc Shock Act. And um, I convinced him to put on some movies at the Princess Theater in South Pittsburgh. And the first one we did was Bride of Frankenstein. The second one was this movie, Plan 9 from Outer Space. And... I'm going to say I had probably seen it before. I'm not 100% certain I had. Didn't stick out in my mind, but this was the first time that I sat down and watched it all the way through. Um, was not my favorite to begin with. This is one that has grown on me, and, and we'll talk about that more in the analysis. But, you know, you have that first wave 
of horror hosting, you know, the classical horror host that begins with Vampira, who's in this movie. And, uh, you know, the great hosts in New York City and Morbius and New Orleans and so forth in the late 50s, 60s and 70s. And I think probably the type of movie, you know, there was a specific packet of movies that they, they built their shows around. Included things like the Wolfman and Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I think that's kind of the movie you think of when you think about that classic period of horror hosting. And then it kind of disappears in the 80s, except for Elvira and a few others on, on large cable networks. But it comes, it starts coming back. And it starts coming back, I think, in large part because of this movie. Really? Yeah. It's a public domain movie. And it is a movie that uh, it won, uh, what is it, a Golden Turkey Award in 1980. Yeah. And yeah. it had been pretty obscure prior to that. And from the 80s to the mid-90s, this movie starts making a comeback. And people start watching it again. Yeah. It's hosted on Mystery Science Theater 3000. And uh, I, I think that, that the, the current trend in horror hosting uh, it's kind of built, and there are a lot of horror hosts out there. Is kind of built up. Part of it is based on the popularity of this movie and Ed Wood's work. I, you know, I love Ed Wood. I do too. I, I've always been one to appreciate the "let's put on a show" yeah. mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take so, what we got and let's make it work. Yeah, you got Roger Corman. You got Ed Wood. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Guys like that Richard putting Cup. out William Castle. William Castle. Yeah. Castle was so much more of a showman than Ed Wood, though. Yes. Yes. I would say Castle is the carnival barker. Yeah. Ed Wood is the the freak show. Ed Wood is the freak show. I think Ed Wood had more to say in his movies. Absolutely. Than either Castle or Corman. Castle and Corman were all about making movies to for the sake of the the yeah. art of the movie. But right. Edward was it's like the difference between arena rock and indie rock. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, Castle is cheap trick. I like cheap trick. Yeah. Yeah. But Ed Wood is the Pixies. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, he's got something to say. He's Sonic Youth. He is uh, Velvet Underground. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about Ed Wood's work. And, you know, several of his movies had, they had a message. Mm -hmm. Um. Glenn or Glenda has a message. And does. A very think, distinct message. A very yeah, personal very distinct, one for him. Yeah, personal for him. A very distinct message. I think Bride of the Monster had less of a message than any of the others, but even it still has a message. Mm -hmm. And this one has, uh, in my opinion, really potent message. But... Why don't we go home? Why don't we go ahead and talk about uh, talk about the synopsis of the movie, and then let's let's get into the analysis. Okay. Um, 
Let's start with a bio of Ed Wood. Yeah, I'm going to just pick up with him moving to Hollywood. Now, it's important to note Ed Wood was a, uh, what would have been called at the time a transvestite. Yes. A cross-dresser. Mm-hmm. He, however, I don't think had gender dysphoria. No. It was about the clothes. Yes. Yeah. He and liked he was heterosexual. And he was heterosexual. Um, so it wasn't gender dysphoria. It wasn't anything but a kink dealing with the clothes, yeah. which got him kicked out of the army. Yeah. So in 47, Wood moves to Hollywood, California, and he wrote scripts and directed television pilots, commercials, westerns. None of it sells, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, he in forty eight he writes, produces, and directs and stars in the Casual Company, which was a mm-hmm. play, which was based on his own novel that no one wanted to publish. That was based on his service in the United States Marine Corps. Yes. So it opens the West Village Playhouse to negative reviews. Yes. Yes. All right, so he goes on writing, directing, and starring in a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mostly westerns and things like that. Yeah. Um, he joins the Screen Actors Guild in 51, mm-hmm. works as a stuntman for a little while. Mm-hmm. He starts to uh, use pen names. Yeah. Uh, starts to use uh, some funny pen names, actually, like Angora. Funny, yeah, yeah, Angora. Which you know, he loved Angora sweaters. I love, I love that pen name. Right, it sounds like a uh, sounds like a roller derby chick. Yeah, it does. And And I looked at Angora sweater. But I couldn't yeah. find one that was big enough. <laughs> you know, they just don't make them for big girls like us. <laughs> no, they don't. Um, add Akdov Telmig, which is just vodka gimlet spelled backwards. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in 52, he meets Bell Lugosi. Yeah. They become fast friends. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, he starts casting Lugosi, right? Right. There's some, um, speculation that maybe it was a little exploitative. Yeah. Um, because Lugosi was dependent on morphine. Yes. And was in poor mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. So by the time 1956 rolls around. Bell Lugosi is fading. Yeah. Physically, right? Yeah. Would produce, wrote, and directed a science fiction film, Plan 9 from Outer Space, mm-hmm. uh, originally titled Grave Robbers from Outer Space, mm-hmm. which uh, featured Bell Lugosi. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lugosi had actually died before the making of the movie. Yes. Um, 
they had uh, shot some footage of him yes. in 55 and 56, mm-hmm. and then they uh, just sort of added it in. Um, you got Amazing Criswell as the narrator. Anyway, yeah. Plan 9 premieres August 15, 1957. In Hollywood, and later goes into general lease in 1959 in Texas and a couple other southern states. Uh, it's funny it how so, they always turn this stuff loose on Texas. Well, you know, it's a big place, it's a big market. Um, a lot of places to run and hide from a crowd and just watch Plan 9. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, by 1961, they sell it to late-night television. Um, yeah. It's not part of the original shock theater pack. No. But it is uh, it's sold to late-night television. No one picks up the copyright. Right. So it starts to build kind of a cult following. Mm-hmm. Uh, from late-night horror hosts like you were talking about. Yes. Yeah. Um, it receives a Golden Turkey Award as the worst film ever made in 1980. And from there, its reputation is sealed. Yes. I would argue this is not the worst film ever made. Oh, definitely. I've seen worse. Oh, yeah. This is not the worst film Ed Wood ever made. Yeah, yeah fair. I see you've got a guest host over your shoulder. Yes, I do. This is the podcasting cat, George. There you go. You hey, always ride shotgun. You just don't usually see him because this time I was silly enough to put a chair close behind me. <laughs> so, uh, you want me to sizzle the movie for you? Yeah, please do. All right. So, starts with Creswell narrating. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how the events of the future are going to affect us in the future. He says future about 14 times. Um, But it starts off with the death of an old man. Yeah. Or uh, his wife, rather. Mm -hmm. An airline flies overhead. The pilot and co-pilot are blinded by a bright light. They look outside and see a flying saucer land at the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Then a zombie, Vampira, mm-hmm. play, uh, who is the old man's wife, mm-hmm. rises from the grave. Mm-hmm. Um, she kills both the grave diggers. Right. The old man is struck by a car and killed. Mm-hmm. The mourners at the old man's funeral discover the gravedigger's bodies, and mm-hmm. finally the police are called in. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So when Inspector Clay and his police officers arrive, he goes off to investigate. Now that's Tor. Big boy. Yeah. Hey, especially for the time period. Yeah. He's a very physically intimidating man. Yes, he is. So. Inspector Daniel Clay goes off to investigate. Jeff and his wife, Paula, who just the airline pilot who just happens to live right next to the cemetery, hears the sirens. And he tells her about the flying saucer. Mm -hmm. Saying the army swarmed at secrecy. Right. 
Another saucer lands, and a powerful swishing noise knocks them down. And the people at the cemetery get knocked down. Clay is killed by uh, Vampira and the Bella Lugosi zombies. Mm-hmm. Newspaper headlines report flying saucer sightings over Hollywood Boulevard, Los Angeles. In D.C., the military fires missiles at flying saucers. And we meet the chief of saucer operations, right? Yes. Which, that's a job, if I've ever heard one, you know? (laughs) So he says they've been covering up saucer attacks for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And that one small town has been completely annihilated. Yes. And... That the official line is that they don't exist. Right. So eventually the aliens return to their space station where Commander Eros, who has been in touch with the Earth, says that the Earth is just ignoring them. Right? Yeah. Right. So he recommends Plan 9. hmm Which is the resurrection of the dead. Mm-hmm. So eventually, Jeff tries to get his wife, the pilot tries to get his wife to stay with her mother. That night, the old man zombie breaks in and follows Paul outside where the female zombie and Inspector Clay join him. Paul escapes, finally collapsing after the three zombies return to Eros. At the Pentagon, General Roberts tells Edwards said the aliens have been telling the government they're trying to prevent humanity from destroying the universe. Mm-hmm. So, Robertson's Edwards, who, again, is the head of saucer relations, out to San Francisco where the alien activity has occurred. Clay attacks Eros, nearly killing him. Yep. After examining Clay, the ruler orders the old man destroyed to further frighten humanity. He approves Eros's plan nine to raise zombie armies. Edwards in the police interview, the pilot and his wife, unaware the flying saucers returned. Officer Kelton, who is completely useless, uh, he encounters the zombie old man who chases him to the pilot's house. Mm-hmm. Eros's ray hits the old man who turns into a skeleton. Edwards, the Trents, and the police drive to the cemetery. Lieutenant Harper insists on leaving Paul in the car where she refuses to stay alone. Kelton stays with her. Once again, Kelton is completely useless. <laughs> Eros he's, he's like comic relief, except he's not all that funny. He's just he's, No, he's like he's like if Barney Fife was taken seriously. <laughs> so Eros and his uh, mate Tana. Mm-hmm. Sing Clay to kidnap Paula and lure the other three humans the saucer, mm-hmm. which works. Clay knocks Kelton out with like one punch. Yeah. Eros lets Trent and the police officer enter the police officer enter the saucer with the pistols drawn. He tells them the human weapon development will lead to the discovery of solonite, a substance which explodes sunlight molecules. We've lost the cat. Uh, <laughs> he can't stand the selling out part. It's... Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. 
Such an explosion was set off an uncontrollable chain reaction destroying the universe. Eros believes that humans are immature and stupid. Mm-hmm. And he says so. Yes. He stupid, wants to kill stupid, stupid. He wants to kill him off. Yes. To stop the Solonite. Um, finally, they realize their weapons are useless. They sneak up behind Clay and knock him out with a wooden club. Arrow says that Clay's controlling ray has been shut off, which released Paula. Mm-hmm. They fight him and the pilot fight. The softest equipment catches on fire. The humans escape. Tanos, Tana and the unconscious Eros take off. The saucer explodes and the zombies decompose the skeletons. Yes. So, all that to say, it is a fun watch. It is a trip. It is. There's something that I wanted to throw in here. We talked a little bit about Bela. And uh, there, there are folks, Bela Lugosi's son, of course, thinks that Ed Wood was taking advantage of his father. Um, there are folks that were close to the situation that said Ed Wood had an, a legitimate affection for Bella Lugosi and was trying to help him. I don't know. I, I expect there were elements of both. But here's the neat thing. Bella Lugosi, of course, becomes famous for Dracula. Mm-hmm. But the next year, he shoots a movie called White Zombie, which is actually an incredibly influential movie on the horror industry. More influential, I think, than Dracula was. Mm-hmm. And throughout the 30s, Bela Lugosi is in, I think, six serials, some of which are quite famous on their own. He's in The Werewolf. He's in Frankenstein. Bela Lugosi is a who's who of the first almost 30 years of horror. Mm-hmm. And his his last act, well, not really his last act. He didn't know he was going to be participating in this movie. But he participated in this movie, which is now ever bit as famous as Dracula and White Zombie. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a, I think it's kind of neat that he, you know, Bella is a force to be reckoned with even, even just a few days after he died, you know? I think so. so. Yeah. Um, it's hard to ascribe a intention to yeah. other people. Yeah, it is. But Knowing what I know about Ed Wood's biography, I don't think he would take advantage of somebody. I don't think so either. I I think he genuinely probably had a relationship with Bella Lugosi where Bella was going, yeah, I'll be in your movie. Yeah, I think he did too. And I think there was some hero worship on the part of, uh, of Ed Wood. I think so. I mean, I can't. I can't, I mean, you know, if, if Bella Lugosi were alive and walked in here, I can't imagine. I mean, I, you know, it, it has to be hero worship. You know, so yeah. I think it I was. I come down on the same side that, yeah. 
Ed Wood had a had a legitimate affection for Bela Lugosi. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Um, so let's uh let's get into picking this thing apart. Let's let's do let's do. What do you think the major theme is here? Okay, for me, here is a huge theme in 1957. You know, 1957, it's three years before the Eisenhower administration plan. J. Edgar Hoover is uh, head of FBI. Speaking of famous cross-dresser. Yes, yes. When you made a horror movie or a sci-fi movie, there's a formula. And it has one or more of these elements. It has some uh, basically good teenagers that have race cars, drag, drag cars. And they work with law enforcement or government scientists or uh, maybe the military to fight against whatever the, the, the monster is. And through the efforts of these good, upstanding American youth and the United States government and the United States military and police law enforcement, this monster is defeated. And I always think about the end of the blob where there's no government involvement till the very end. And you see that Chinook helicopter carrying the blob to the North Pole. And it almost elevates the United States government to the status of a god. Yeah. This movie, Ed Wood says that the government knows about the UFOs that every time you see a fire or you see a flood or you see an earthquake, it may actually have been an alien attack that the United mm-hmm. States government is causing, is covering up. Yeah. And causing. And causing. Mm-hmm. It's very ambiguous because the, the head of the saucer division says, that we tried to befriend the aliens first and they attacked us. But the aliens say they came here to communicate with us and we attacked them. So I tend to come down on the, on the fact that we're supposed to believe that the government actually attacked the aliens first. I think so. And at the end of it, who were the good guys? I mean, the aliens are trying to prevent the destruction of the universe. This is very true. But so you would trying not to do it have by... a film that was this anti-government that I can think of. This is the first one I know of. And you wouldn't have another one until Dr. Strangelove in 1965. Yeah. And even in ways, Dr. Strangelove is not as subversive as this is. This has that outsider, nothing to lose quality to it. Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, Ed Wood had his problems with the military. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I believe it was a pink bra that was the main problem. Um, yeah. So... There is not a picture of him in the in the lobby at Camp Lejeune. No. Um, 
So my man had problems with the government. Yes. And he had already failed so much. Yeah. He didn't care anymore. Right. You know, there was no need for him to mollycoddle people. No. You know what it reminds me of? I don't think you would have John Waters without Ed Wood. No, I don't think you would. I think Ed Wood is breaking ground. Okay. When you watch, let's say the blob. Mm -hmm. The blob is a very X-Files thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it has nothing in common with the X-Files. When you watch Plan 9 from Outer Space, man, Mulder and Scully could fit right in there. Oh, yeah. It is very, it's that same, you know, the government is at best morally ambiguous. Mm -hmm. At worst, it's evil. Yeah. Um, I would say morally ambiguous is uh, pretty generous. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is, uh, and that is so far ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. You won't begin to see that widespread until the late '60s and early '70s. Yeah, when distrust of the government becomes kind of a, it becomes uh, much more. You know, Nixon administration. It becomes, you know, more it mainstream. becomes much more widespread. Yeah. And you don't, but even at that, you don't see it as blatant really until the X Files. Yeah, yeah. Um, you do see it in like outsider art, though. Yes, yes. You know, yes. Um, when you watch like, so when we're talking about B movies, right? Mm -hmm. The technical definition of a B movie. Mm -hmm. is a movie often they were shot as the B project on a set. Right. So you'd have a studio system that would uh, have, say, they'd be making a love story during the day, and then at night mm -hmm. they're making a film noir on the same set. Yeah. Yeah. That's a B movie. That's a B movie. And those movies were at least at first, were made to target uh, Saturday matinees, uh, young mm -hmm. kids. Yeah. Uh, later on, it's they're designed to for the drive-in circuit, same type audience, young kids, but yeah. they're they're very specific, and they're studio made. We call this a B movie, but really, it's it's really not. It's not. It's outsider art. It's outsider art, yes. I yeah. would call this psychotronic cinema. Now, you have used that phrase as long as I've known you. Yes. What is your definition of psychotronic? Psychotronic is very nebulous and is, is poorly defined. Um, it has some references. There was a, a psychotronic magazine for a while. Um, there's, some, there's some references to it. But in general, psychotronic involves things, themes that you might find in pulp magazines um, mm -hmm. translated to the big screen. So mm -hmm. karate movies, 
um, spy movies, a lot of horror movies, uh, you know, definitely the Mexican movies with the luchadors, the wrestlers in them. Um, tends to be a lot of rock and roll involved with psychotronic movies. Mm -hmm. um, it, and that's not, you know, I haven't hit everything in it, but that is kind of the, the ballpark of psychotronic cinema. Most of it tends to be outsider art. Although I would argue that psychotronic cinema starts to become really popular. And so you have something like the Satanic Rites of Dracula or Dracula AD 1972. This made by major by what at the time was a major uh, a major studio, but they're trying to capture that outsider element with uh, Dracula AD nineteen seventy two has kind of the uh, the hipster, you know the the hip the young kids the rock and roll feel. Um, Dracula the Satanic Rites of Dracula has the motorcycle gang and. Uh, the, the cult feel and the spy movie element to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be as close as I can get to a definition of psychotronic cinema. So it's kind of like punk rock. You don't necessarily know what it, it is, is but rock. you know when you hear it. Yeah, it's it's punk rock cinema. And yeah. and punk rock and rockabilly go hand in hand with it. Like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, well, lowbrow art. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the in vogueness of tattoo art. Yes, you know, exactly. yeah, you can slap it on T-shirts, but nothing beats the feeling of going into a parlor. That's right. So, absolutely. But yeah, I, I think this qualifies as outsider art. Oh yeah, psychotronic yeah. art. Yeah. It's made by someone who's not entirely heteronormative. He's not entirely uh, what we would call het, cishet nowadays. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, absolutely. He's gotten just a different way of seeing the world and a very different world experience. And yes. it's coming across here, you know? It comes across. Well, you stop and you think about it. Um, it's not that far-fetched that you and I could grab a camera and put together a movie. Mm. Two-hour movies, a lot of work, but we could put together a movie relatively cheaply, depending on, on what we put in it. Um, but in 1957, it was not cheap to put together a movie of any kind. Yeah, you, you didn't have a camera on your phone. You didn't have a camera on your phone. I mean, I've shot Tennessee Macabre on on a hundred and eighty dollar camera now for five years. You know, the 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 movie production cameras that Ed Woods used were outside the budget of most Americans. Yeah, and uh, this man believed in what he was writing and the art he was making so strongly that he managed to raise the money to pull all these elements together and make these movies. Well, you got to wonder about, you know, and eventually he went into pornography. Yes. He eventually just made porn. Yes. Um, which was much more lucrative. Yeah. For him. 
And um, but even at that, he was not financially successful. No, because he was still weird. Orgy of the Dead is a weird movie. Yes, it's very weird porn. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it was a. Uh, it was an experience. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, you watch it and you're just sitting there going, "Wait, what is happening?" Well, the first time that I watched it, I turned it on and I thought, "Oh, here's an Ed Wood horror movie I haven't seen." Yeah. Had no idea it was porn. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, and it sneaks oh, right up on you, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. It does. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I see what he's going for here. Yeah. You know, it's weird because I think pornography and horror, um, have a very basic sort of affinity for each other. Yes, yes. Because they are playing on base primal yes. bodily reactions. Yes, yes. To cinema. And one uh, of the things arousal that, or fear. Yeah, you know, I mentioned the satanic rite of Dracula a while ago. And it, uh, it not only capitalizes on the motorcycle gangs, there's a strong element. It's not pornography but uh a lot of nudity okay yeah so uh yeah they go together and yeah. you know the 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 late 70s slasher flicks yeah there was a lot of nudity and uh violence and sexual violence that were tied up with those as well absolutely um, and you have to wonder what Ed Wood's contribution might have been to that. You know, there's a certain hyper gendered feel to this movie. Do you notice yes. that? Yeah. The men are so manly. And yes. the women are so womanly, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's very stereotypical fifties. No. Yeah. And then you got Vampira. Yeah. Wandering around. Who yeah. is almost a caricature of the femme fatale. Yes. With her waist that always shocks me whenever I see it. Oh, wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Very strange like, looking chick. Yeah. She looks like a wasp. Yeah. 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 Quite literally. You know? Mm -hmm. It's bizarre, but it is what it is. I mean, she did a lot of, uh, and that was a fetish thing back then. It was, and uh, of course it is. I mean, she dated. I mean, she she dated Elvis. Yeah. Um, very popular. Uh, uh, was it Norma Maley? What was her first name? I think that's right, okay. Norma. But she was very popular in Hollywood. And the Hollywood social scene, and um, the the Vampire series was not something that I don't think she was particularly fond of. Hmm. Uh, it was just what Arnold living, um, and it didn't last all that long. 
when you yeah. compare it to some of the other horror hosts out there. But uh, very impactful, and she was the first. Yeah. And she she is canon canonically the first. Yes. Well. Yeah. That's cool. First horror host. Well. So we've talked a lot about horror hosting and just the experience of watching these movies. Yes. You know? And I think yeah. that that experiential take on cinema mm -hmm. marks this as a not a modernist but a postmodernist view of cinema. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um I would argue that this is the turning point in cinema between modernist and postmodernist. Yeah, I I can buy that. And it takes somebody, and of course, it didn't do well. Oh no, no. I I I kind of wonder if Ed Wood ever planned on it doing well. I think Ed Wood, like a lot of guys out there, like Pinchon and, you know, your postmodernist writers, really deludes himself into thinking people want challenging art. Yeah. I can buy that. I think that you're probably right, and I've known folks like that. And, uh, yeah, the I'm like that to a certain extent. I don't think, well, I'm going to back up and say something now. The general public now doesn't get it. No. This is still not a mainstream type of movie. There, there's a certain set of people that are going to go out and look for this movie to watch it. Same set of people that are going to go out and look for horror hosts to watch. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, most people have never seen it and will take one look at the cinematography or the acting, or the dialogue, mm -hmm. and you lose them. But it's like writing off someone because they're not a virtuoso. Absolutely. Absolutely. Most of what you see, you don't... See, I keep coming back to music because that's the yeah. only place where you see amateurs routinely make it. Right, right. You know? Right. Um, but in the world of cinema, because it's so expensive, yeah. you don't see anybody but the virtuosos. No, absolutely. It would be as if the only people you'd ever seen perform music were your Mozarts and your Beethovens. Right. right. And then you hear somebody playing piano in a juke joint, and you go, well, that's terrible. No, it's just different. And that's exactly what happens. You know, they look at it and... and what they don't realize is that the message that's there, there's more of a message there than, I mean, I, I have seen hundreds, maybe thousands of movies that had less of a message, less of a message than Plan 9 from Outer Space. I would absolutely agree with you. Um, I've seen tons. You can teach people how to make a movie. You can't teach them to have something to say. That's that is well said. <laughs> that is very well said. And that's right. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that um, I just really can't sit through. And yeah. I can watch Plan 9 
over and over again. Like I think I told you before we got on, Tennessee McCobb has hosted it twice. I hosted it once at Shock, with Shock Theater. Um, it's something you just keep coming back to and keep watching. I think the replay value, I, I, I've watched this no less than seven times. Mm-hmm. Um, I own it. Yeah. And I go back to it every couple of years or whenever I meet somebody who's getting into psychotronic or lowbrow art and I go, yeah. have you seen Plan 9? Yeah. Because it's a must-see. It's a must-see. And every time I see it, every time I see it, you know, the first time I, first time I saw it, first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Look at those flying saucers. That's <laughs> what yeah. everybody does, you know. Uh, but then you, you start to tease out a little bit of, of – I think the first thing that, that came to me was, okay, cinematography aside, this movie is definitely, definitely different than anything else we watched from the period. Absolutely. There's nothing that compares. And there's a lot, okay, there's a lot of really well shot science fiction and horror from the mm -hmm. period that I've watched, but I don't really care about watching it over and over again. You know what I feel like? What's that? That way about the What's day that? the earth stood still. Yeah. Uh, that's, that was that was going through my mind. Yeah, it's a it's a grand movie. I've seen it enough. Yeah, I have At to. twice I've seen it enough. Yeah, it was influential. We acknowledged the influence. It was, you know, it was making a statement. It was making a statement about the popularity of UFOs in the United States. But honestly, I think this this movie makes more of a statement about the popularity of UFOs in the United States in the 1950s, because this is a much more unabashed view. Mm -hmm. And it's a much more truthful view. Yeah. In the day that also, it's, it's just more fun. It's more fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the day the earth stood still. It's all right. It's a great movie. Don't get it's me wrong. Right. Well, you know, it's not people, any fun to watch though. It's not any fun to watch, and and this is something we haven't really talked about. In the 1950s, you have people who are coming forward and saying, I have seen a UFO. Mm -hmm. I have seen a UFO. And the government was coming out going, oh, it's a weather balloon. Oh, it's swamp gas. You know, there's all these explanations that part of the time, Everybody knew you were, you know, you look at the picture the guy took, you know, it's bullshit. That's not swamp gas. Yeah. Um, now, the government has just straight up said, we uh, might not know what they are. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I find infinitely more disconcerting. Yes, I do too. Because I, I too. like. I like to live in a world where the government knew what they were, had a handle mm -hmm. on it, and just couldn't trust us to be cool. Now yes. that they're like, yeah, that's pretty weird. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you don't get to say that. You've no, got to know. 
I want the scientist in the business suit that shows up and says, we got this handle. <laughs> yeah. Not some general going, I don't know. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Maybe aliens. So what do you think is the, uh, what do you think is actually the worst movie ever made? To be widely released. To be widely released. Worst movie yeah. ever made. Mm. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? You know, I am going to uh, catch grief for this mm -hmm. because it is a classic and people love it. But there's two movies that I would rather drill a hole in my foot than watch. One of them is Dr. Zhivago. Oh. The other is Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> Both roundly unwatchable. <laughs> roundly unwatchable. And, you know, give me waterboarding. I'll do two and a half hours of waterboarding. Just don't make me watch that. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Looks pretty good. Um, worst movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Manos, The Hands of Fate. Yeah, Manos is probably if we're talking about cinematography and and content, it's yeah. probably Manos. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's a one called the called the Wasp Women or something like that that I've yeah. watched too. It's pretty bad. I own that one. Yeah. Yeah. I used to put it on at parties to clear them out. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. That or a gym called Barely Legal Lesbian Vampires. Yes. The only thing barely legal was their immigration status. I promise yeah. you that. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad too. Yeah. Um. Up there is the German movie Plankton. Now, I've never seen that one. I've heard of it. It is disgusting. Okay. Yeah. It, it actually made me physically ill. Okay. Yeah. So, watch with caution. <laughs> okay. <laughs> About the scene where the woman gives birth to fish eggs, I was like, no, I'm good. I yes, really wish I hadn't seen that. <laughs> I wish I hadn't seen that. <laughs> so, well, I think that's about it for Plan 9. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I would I would just, okay. You want to give it a final my man, Poor Johnson here. Oh, gosh. Love him. 300 pounds. I think, I think he was like actually closer to 400 pounds. Swedish wrestler. Big, big guy. And, uh, kind of a precursor to uh, the Mexican luchadors. I mean, this guy sort of mm -hmm. paved the way on his own and did a lot of moves, impressive number of moves. Um, we talked about, we talked about Malin army. Um, and I, I would, I would like to mention, um, Oh, she, what was the name I was thinking of? Um, uh, well, one I mean, thing that I think is kind of neat is, you know who funded this, right? No, no. I didn't come across that in my research. The First Baptist Church of Hollywood. 
<laughs> I was ready for that. Convinced them that the way to fund a religious documentary was to have a successful science fiction film. Wow. <laughs> Say what you want. The man was a salesman. He was a salesman. That's right. <laughs> so. Oh, and um, then the amazing Criswell. That's who mm -hmm. I wanted to mention. Uh, didn't know a whole lot about him when I seen this and uh, got to reading up on him. He was actually, he was, he made a lot of the tours on the late night shows and stuff like that. He was kind of a, a self-made psychic running around Hollywood. And interesting point, someone asked him in an interview because particularly by the time, by the time he's makes plan nine from outer space, it's obvious to everybody involved that he is just more or less pretending to be a psychic. Yeah. And somebody asked him, if he was, if he really had the gift. And he said, I really did. And I abused it to make money. Hmm. And I, I don't have it anymore. But he said, when I started out, I really was a psychic. Well, that's true. Well, that, that sounds like a movie in and of itself. Yeah, it does. A fascinating guy. And, um, yeah. it, you know, sounds like a movie in and of itself. Well, I think that's about it for me as far as this movie goes. I think we've I love it. We can. <laughs> yeah, I love it. What do you got to promote? Uh, Tennessee Macabre, of course, uh, Saturday nights on ITV Chattanooga, Otherworlds TV. You can find us on uh, the Monster Channel. You can also find us on Betamax for Roku. And you can find us on the Vortex online. So I want to promote that. We've got a concert coming up in Nashville on February 5th. I uh, want to let everybody know about that. Uh, Blood Oaks will be performing. Uh, Four Barrel Funeral, The Muggers, and Team Tones. So yep. we're going to be have we're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be a uh, uh, heck of a heck of a night. So if you're in the Nashville area, can get to the Nashville area. Or know somebody you can stay with in the Nashville area. You got to come out and see that concert. Yeah, uh, we'll look into uh, some way to stream it live for y'all too. Yes, yes. For all, all of you who can't make it. That's right. So, all right. Well, until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye bye.